Hi everyone, and welcome to Crime Science. In this podcast, we explore the science of crime and the practical application of this science for loss prevention and asset protection practitioners, as well as other professionals. Episode of Crime Science podcast from the LPRC. This is the latest in our weekly update series, and I'm joined today by colleagues Tony D'Onofrio and Tom Meehan and our producer Diego Rodriguez. Uh, Diego's fresh off a four-day weekend, so we've just been joking with him. Hopefully, he got a little bit of relaxation. Um, so, uh, just to update uh, with the the thing that keeps on keeping on, and that's the uh, global pandemic uh, from the coronavirus. Um, we know that uh, it just continues to morph, to evolve um, in these uh, Omicron uh, different variants and the reinfections uh, that are breaking all the rules. Just when it appears the scientists uh, working in this area, the virologists felt like they had a handle on uh, how natural and vaccine and uh, interaction of the two sometimes created immunity and probably provided a lot of protection from reinfection for those that had natural infection. But it turns out that uh, that people in all the above categories continually are getting now reinfected. Uh, it looks like, again, according to data and what I've been reading here, that uh, the infections are increasingly less serious for most people. There are always those exceptions, but uh, they seem to be that case. Um, I read a very interesting uh, Wall Street Journal article on um, think you've never been infected kind of uh, headline. And uh, I know myself, as far as I know, I've not been infected. Kim's not. And and uh, really, in fact, almost nobody in my family, it seems, uh, or others. But uh, in fact, probably they think right now, still with these big uh, meta-analyses where you combine multiple studies and normalize and then analyze. So that about 40% of infected people just are completely asymptomatic or the symptoms are so almost subclinical that uh, you don't know. And again, most people, even today, don't have access to testing, don't go and test if they just don't feel right uh, or uh, or for other reasons. So uh, it's just been very difficult. So uh, there are a couple of labs they were talking about, a handful of labs in the United States that have the capability of looking at antibodies because, again, uh, antibodies are generated for a variety of proteins in these viruses and so on, or the vaccines, right? That's what we're trying to do is launch that that immune system um, and to tell whether these uh, antibodies are specific for the virus itself or something else or parts of the virus uh, versus the vaccine um, that replicates uh, the spike protein or parts of the spike protein. uh, Most labs just in testing just don't know. They can't discriminate. So it's it's a very puzzling question. Uh, So some people are walking around thinking they're bulletproof, um, in other words, immune completely immune, but may in fact have had it, just lucked out, didn't inhale a bunch. In fact, one of our researchers from the University of Florida that's been working on an NSF project with us, she got, um, she's been uh, Pfizer two doses plus the booster, young lady in her 20s, um, very healthy, and she then got uh, the coronavirus and felt really bad for two weeks. Now she's up and completely cleared, but it took a while also for the test to show that she was cleared of the viral particles. Uh, And so now she's back in our lab, uh, at least working on uh, virtual reality testing with um, Rochelle on our team. So it's very interesting how this this thing keeps going. Um, All right, so moving on, we're looking at uh, 
the infection rates remain high. Uh, on the seven-day average I just looked at was 128,000 new daily infections detected in a very low testing period. So it, I guess it indicates that there is a lot of infection still occurring. Uh, last year at this time, the seven-day average was 52,000. So, you know, way less than half um, uh, a year ago. So we've more than doubled the infections uh, that are being determined and at a time where testing is probably less frequent than before. So uh, no telling, but it looks like it's uh, pretty widespread and continuing to spread at a high level. Um, looking over at the vaccines, I see that there's a charge by the government to try and pull together the vaccine manufacturers to look ahead, which seems sort of uh, interesting to me. Maybe it's just a headline grabber um, because we keep talking about almost every week about their, uh, the amount of new vaccines entering the pipeline all the time for the variants and for beyond and different ways to administer the vaccine. Uh, we talked about through the nasal passage and so on to see if we can get more uh, reduction in infection in addition to seriousness of disease if you are infected. <clears throat> so they're currently tracked 123 clinical trials, according to a New York Times uh, tracking survey. So 123 vaccine candidates in cl uh, clinical trials right now, human clinical trials. Um, there are 53 in phase one, 48, about 50, in other words, in phase two, and 51 in phase three. So you can see there are a lot of, uh, of these candidates entering the pipeline, moving through the pipeline. We talked about how it's increasingly difficult to conduct some of the bigger trials because everybody's either been infected or vaccinated or both. So <clears throat> this is a, an interesting time. The Novavax, which we've talked about for almost two years, it seems like now, is emergency use authorized in the United States. The U.S. government um, three years ago, two years ago, contracted to buy several million doses. They just had more manufacturing issues to try and find the right places to do the manufacturing at the at the proper level of um sanitary conditions uh, maintain that each and every dose is highly efficacious and that there's not a variation there and so on. Um, I saw the one report in the U.S. Air Force has authorized now the Novavax. Uh, it's a different type of vaccine. And so the idea is that uh, individuals that for whatever reason were opposed to or concerned about anyway, the, um, the mRNA vaccines, the Pfizer um, and uh, Moderna, for example, uh, might not have concerns because it's much more traditional vaccine type, um, and it does appear to be highly efficacious. Uh, testing already shows, though, like the other vaccines and everything else, human immunity, natural immunity, uh, the Omicron seems to be still an issue, but it reduces, again, like the other vaccines, the seriousness of the disease on average. And again, we've always got to look at studies that we work with in criminology, studies that we look at in biological science, and they're they're at the aggregate that's on average, on average this versus on average that. Um, the individuals, all of us are so different, which leads me kind of as we move out of the pandemic to talk a little bit about our research and the science and things that we're doing at LPRC. And um, this idea of heterogeneity that uh, each and every one of us are different from the other and that even those differences change by us through time, uh, how we perceive the world, our health, our behavior or activities. Um, the same thing holds at a place level that those places change all the time. Think about your favorite restaurants or bars or gathering places or the or the schools and who's at the school or at the bars changes the names, the ownership, the, the patronage, the neighborhood around them, 
the blocks and so on continually change and evolve. So not only are things and people and places different from each other, that makes it tough to study or to do something that works across the board, but those can, they're continually changing. And that, that complexity is really what we look at at the LPRC and trying to understand the heterogeneity or the, the differences. It's not a homogeneous um, display where everybody is age 30 and, uh, you know, in other words, born in this year and look like this and so forth and do this and do that at the same time. That's just not normal and that's not natural and that's not the reality on the ground. So it makes it a little more difficult. So in our research, that's why you'll see we'll try and get large samples randomly selected, randomly assigned the overall sample to get treated or not get treated. Uh, in other words, something tested there or different versions are randomly assigned to be tested versus not being tested in control, kind of like a placebo arm. Uh, and so there, that's part of the reason is that regardless of differences in individuals and places uh, individually and over time, that if we randomly assign a large enough sample that we normally can overcome and that the, the main systematic difference between the two groups is what we put in there or treat with or, or uh, deploy, intervene and in intervention. So um, I wanted to kind of bring that out. And that's a, the, the main reason too also is it's a main call out. Why a group like the LPRC is so critical to the industry, to the world really, um, is because we need a persistent, highly capable group of researchers, a community of now 70 major retail corporations, 90 uh, top-notch technology providers, people like Proper, Procter & Gamble and so on, the retail associations in this community, because we've got to maintain and continue research and research and development because everything and every place is different and everything and every place continues to change. And so we can't just come up with something, deploy it and put it out there. And you see with some of the so-called legacy protective technologies and things like that, they still have a lifespan they can be enhanced and continually improved, but they can't just work well now and forever. And we all know that. And we've certainly seen that with the virus and, and people are even, believe it or not, a little more complex than viruses are. So just a, a little quick primer or call out on the, the method to the madness as far as research goes, research and development and the LPRC, how we're uh, instrumenting ourselves continually to do that to take that into account, those factors. And, and so our group is growing. We're adding retailers now. Uh, we came into the year to just about 60 retail corporations because we've had turnover during the pandemic. We lost some retailers or they changed leadership, primarily is the main reason, some because of economic. Many of those have rejoined and then many new ones. Um, and we're talking to about 35 additional retailers right now. So we'll just see how this all uh, rolls out. But um, the group is growing. We're adding uh, the same thing. We entered with about 70 uh, technology. Uh, in other words, um, our solution partners or providers, SPs. We're now at about 92 <clears throat> and more coming in. We're being very selective because we're trying not to, we want to always have, we'll never have one to one ratio. It could be one, 1.2 to one or something like that. Uh, so there, there may be a few more SPs than retail corporations, but um, we see a very uh, rapidly growing community right now. And, and so our team's growing. We're adding two new operational people. It turns out Diego just can't do everything himself. And um, with Chad and Brian, and uh, now with Wilson, with Tom, Tom Keel, 
Um, we're adding another person uh, as well. Um, getting coming up here, we've got two really, really good candidates for one slot. So it's coming down uh, to a few factors there. And then on the research side, adding two more research scientists, which will be an incremental gain of one. So we'll, in fact, now have uh, hopefully myself here, uh, but then five research scientists assigned. Um, one has accepted the offer. We've got an offer out to another, um, even though we've got two more good candidates um, and we're just continually looking for more funding because we need, really we need uh, seven research scientists. But we're continuing to grow, plus Rochelle uh, being our research associate. We need another Rochelle, if you will, on the team. So, but to take it on and to specialize, but also generalize. So what we're trying to do with these seven working groups, and again, we've got product or merchandise protection, anti-theft working group. We've got the supply chain protection working group, which by the way, has their annual summit uh, on August 2nd uh, in Philadelphia, a uh, day and a half, two day summit there hosted by TGX at their distribution center there. Um, so we're excited about that. Diego is one of the main organizers of that uh, supply chain protection working group and the summit itself. Um, so it looks like a great turnout, amazing, amazing agenda, probably the most complete, uh, comprehensive um, agenda I've ever seen for one of our summits. Um, but we've also got the retail fraud working group, um, and that's where James Martin and others are working on uh, an amazing in-store and online typology of the different types of fraud that, that are being reported. And the retailers are helping to build that, uh, and, and companies like APRIS, companies uh, that are working in this fraud field uh, are helping us shape this too. Uh, so uh, you're going to see a very comprehensive listing for the first time of the different types of fraud. Some of the symptoms, how you might spot it, what are they doing? Uh, so what, how does it work? How do we spot it? And then what are tools to prevent uh, if that doesn't work to document and roll them up through investigations? Um, so I'm excited about what's happening in that group. The DOG, uh, Data Analytics Working Group that James heads up. You're seeing now mapping being incorporated in there. And they're starting to do some really sophisticated uh, data analytics, in addition to the to, to very important basic data analytics, uh, things like chi-square and t-test and regression, uh, ANOVA or MANOVA and things like that. But now you're seeing ARIMA, which is looking at uh, kind of forecasting its repeated measures over time to help the retailers better understand how to use their information to get more out of it. And by the way, we were just going through a big data set a retailer gave us, and this is uh, very, very typical. The data set is very, very, very confusing, and we all know this is normal in a retail environment that the data sets come from all across the organization. They're, people don't necessarily have what we call a code sheet or code book where we, for a variable, we list what this is, how it's measured, what type of variable, and then there's a data label that's standardized and makes sense. It, it describes what this is. Um, so we have several of these things that have come in. In this huge, huge data set, um, our team is going through and having multiple calls with the retailer because one group has no idea what this is or that is. Some of them are mislabeled and all this kind of thing. So this is normal, and uh, that's the data analytics working group uh, on top of, the, again, uh, leveraging information and mapping that. So you see Corey and James working on mapping all kind of information from the National Retail Security Survey from the National Organized Retail Crime Survey that Corey just conducted, uh, and from the ARCS 
uh, survey that Corey's conducting where retailers going down to that micro level and reporting what's happening by location in addition to the National Retail Security Survey, which is a an aggregate or a roll-up of what each participant thinks is going on. So you can see uh, on that scale, getting this macro information down to somewhat micro information, and then further being able to tap into NIBRS and other federal and state and local databases from law enforcement, see how they match up, get a better picture of the world. What are we dealing with? Get the context down. Um, the Violent Crime Working Group, again, working on the active assailant, active killer shooter scenarios. Um, we've written up or just about completed our first re research and action brief on that first telefocus group with 11 retail chains with their threat assessment people. Um, we're getting ready to deploy some technology in the lab that might uh, increase survivability um, during an actual event. So we're again looking left of bang or left of contact uh, and then also add contact. How do we better survive uh, in addition to, of course, how do we better prevent all the way up till the actual uh, kinetic attack happens. Um, looking at the going over and then taking a look at uh, the innovation working group. The way we're doing this is um, on the board of advisors, we have a an innovation committee, which is going to become the research and innovation committee. Uh, that's a handful of our of our board. They volunteer to be on that committee to help us make sure that we're getting the uh, structure, the participation, um, the funding, and the resources, in other words, that we need to carry out the research. The LPRC Innovate Advisory Panel is now going to 30 major retailers and um, a handful of our solution partners that are um, funding this effort and allowing us to bring on two more researchers and one uh, network technician or net tech. Um, that group is helping us set the standards. There'll be eight uh, contact points for them. In other words, at Ignite and impact at this. So we'll book in the physical meeting for the LPRC Innovate Working Group, or excuse me, advisory panel uh, with six teams call engagements in between. Um, and it's going to be the right people talking about the right things. And then finally, the Innovation Working Group, where I started, you know, that's think about the brains and the arms and the legs to make it happen uh, with us. And so uh, that's a few of the working groups and some of the activities going on. I want to remind everybody about Impact Conference coming up again the 3rd through the 5th of October. I would hardly recommend uh, if you're an LPRC member and you've got two free slots that you you book those people in, both the travel, hotel room, and uh, register because we're getting some record enrollment here and we, we do have a capacity. We do have a limit, physical space limit. Um, so with that, let me turn it over to Tony, Tony D'Onofrio. And Tony, if you could take it away. Thank you very much, Reed. And again, really great updates on both what's going on with uh, the pandemic and also with LPRC. And I'm looking forward to uh, impact. So let me start uh, this week by summarizing a new article that I am publishing this week where I asked the question very relevant to this group, is retail crime out of control? This is actually part one of a two-part series because there was so much data available. Uh, and I started by saying that last late last year sensational flash rob pre-holiday events uh, elevated the concerns of uh, retail crime on black friday alone last year a crew of eight people made off for 400 worth of sledgehammers crowbars and hammers from the home depot in lakewood california a group ransacked uh, a bottega vanega boutique 
in uh, Los Angeles and roughly 30 people swarmed at Best Buy near Minneapolis Grabby Electronics. And what I said is in the era of social media, these events uh, led to some really riveting television. And in fact, in the article, I played the, uh, the flash Rob at Louis Vuitton in San Francisco. Since uh, we're in the summer, it's probably not too early to think about what's going to happen this holiday season. So the questions that I try to answer in these two articles are, what's been the impact of the pandemic on retail crime statistics? How has violence uh, patterns, uh, how have violence patterns evolved? What are the profile of the, you know, of the folks in the criminal wave? How will inflation and a potential recession impact retail crime? And if indeed retail crime is out of control, what do we do about it? So I started out with a summary of some crime statistics, the latest ones available. And I started actually uh, with the RELA 2021 report that was published late last year, where they summarized the following, nearly $69 billion worth of products were stolen from retailers in 2019, which was pre-COVID. USA retail crime results in over $125 billion in lost economic activity and nearly uh, 660,000 fewer jobs paying more than 39 just over $39 billion in wages and benefits to workers. Retail theft cost the federal and state government nearly $15 billion in personal and business tax revenues, not including the lost sales tax. Nearly 67% of asset protection managers and leading retailers surveyed um, report a moderate to considerable increase in organized retail crime, and 80% believe it, is, it will get worse in the future. And then academic research has suggested that most retail thefts represent crimes of opportunity. We talk a lot about that here at the LPRC. In other words, people steal one that it's easy to do. Other causes include poor economic condition and dissatisfaction among workers. However, professional criminals identify the availability of anonymous online marketplaces as ways to easily fence goods and prosecution prosecution changes as being major factors contributing to the growth of organized retail crime. In fact, the growth in online marketplaces is highly correlated, 61%, to the number of shoplifting events reported last year. In addition, those retailers most affected to shoplifting, those retail items or categories most um, subject to shoplifting activities are also the ones most sought taught through the through those online marketplaces. According to the National Retail Federation, ORC costs retailers an average of $720,000 for every billion dollars in sales in 2020, which was up dramatically from 450,000 five years earlier. ORC highlights uh, the, the in the National Retail Survey, which I'm glad to see we're getting an update read by the LPRC for the 2021. They corroborated a lot of the data that came out of RELA. And in the uh, National Retail Security Survey, about 69% of retailers said they have seen an increase in ORC activity over the past year. They cited reasons such as COVID, policing, Changes in sentencing guidelines and growth in online marketplaces with increase in the ORC activity. Retailers report these gangs are more aggressive and violent. 
that in past years, 65% of respondents know the, the increase in violence, while 37% said ORC and gangs were much more aggressive than in the past. Let me now talk about uh, briefly in terms of uh, what happened with two crime during the pandemic. The latest retail theft survey from Hayes International concluded that in 2021, retailers moved away from apprehensions and focused more on recoveries. Shoplifting apprehensions were down just over 16%, while overall shoplifting recoveries were up a near staggering 31%. Uh, in the article itself, you'll see the actual case value for each type of incident, and as you will see, they were up dramatically. On average, the amount of theft by an unchecked dishonest employee will increase by 58% each month. Interesting, the continued focus on technology to combat uh, theft and dramatic changes in investment and people resources between 2020 and 21. And there's a chart that I show with the actual percentages in the article. In the 2021 NRF uh, security service, retailers also reported new risks and threats are now a priority, um, which include mall, store violence, shootings, uh, cyber-related cyber incidents, internal theft, gift card fraud, and return fraud. Plus, all those new services that expanded uh, during the pandemic are now carrying more risk. In terms of fraud, retailers reported the most significant increase in fraud from multi-channel sales like BOPIS or buy online pickup in stores with 39% indicating it is a concern in 2021 compared to 19% in 2020. In-store sales fraud dropped from 49% to 28% from 2020-21, while online say only while online only sales fraud remained steady at 26%. Finally, in this section, I pointed out that this is not a big chain issue. 54% of small businesses owners said they experienced increased shoplifting in 2021. And let me end this part by talking about um, how violence changed and what's happening with violence and retail crime. So this ends the part one and there'll be more in part two. And as, as we briefly um, indicated in the data I just cited from the ORC, violence is increasing uh, and it's an increasing factor with retail crime. Some new data that was actually in the 2021 Rila survey, which was interesting, 86% said that ORC camera, uh, criminals had, had verbally threatened and associated with bodily harm. Nearly 76% reported that organized retail criminals have physically assaulted an associate, and nearly 76% surveyed said that a criminal has threatened the use of a weapon against an associate. Uh, and then additional data that actually appeared in the ND, uh, 2021 was another violent year in retail with incidents up 9% and fatalities up 14% uh, from the previous year. There were 595 uh, fatalities in retail in 2021, which was up 18%. Uh, not 18% of those were suspects. 53% were uh, customers, 26% were store associates, and 3% were law enforcement, uh, loss prevention and security. Alarmingly, both uh, customer and associate deaths were up 24% each in 2021 when compared to 2020. 50 
uh, percent of the retail fatalities were inside the mall or a store, 45 percent were in the parking lot, and 5 percent died off premises, which again reinforces the importance of all those zones that we talked about at LPRC. And incidentally, 2021 was a reversal from 2020 when parking lots had the highest number of fatalities. And finally, just some uh, conclusion in terms of what does this do to employees? So looking at some employee surveys, 80% of workers experience or witnessed hostile behavior from customers when staff tried enforcing COVID-19 safety measures. 39% of workers were leaving or already left their job because of concerns with hostility and harassment from customers. And this survey was conducted between October 2020 and, uh, and May 2021. Uh, safety is a major critical ingredient to successful deploying uh, retail models. And the alternatives can be very costly on multiple levels. Just recently, Starbucks announced that they will close 16 U.S. stores, mostly on the West Coast, by the end of the year because of safety concerns. And that's the end of part one. And again, this data is important here at the LPRC, and we're working together to actually address a lot of it. And with that, let me turn it over to Tom. Well, thank you, Reed. Thank you, Tony. And uh, actually, Tony, just on the Starbucks piece, there was a tremendous amount of chatter on social media. Uh, and I would say it's around the board, both negative and positive. Uh, it's interesting uh, how social media gives a lot of people a larger voice. And when a topic becomes viral, if you will, there's a lot of conversation about it. And I would say that the the there are some noise and I call it noise because it's not necessarily from um, reputable sources. It's from regular folks just talking about how they see a trend of more stores closing and how there needs to be more done. So uh, definitely a topic that keeps coming up. And uh, I think in general, what we're seeing is more of that on uh, the social media piece. I wanted to just cover a couple risk topics, um, kind of updates on some things that we've spoke about before. And uh, real before I get started with that, there was a, a study done, um, and VentureBeats actually talked about this study. It says 75% of IT security professionals say they don't get the support they need. Interestingly enough, the, the study was not just about IT support professionals. It actually refers to security professionals in general and, and how it opens up as many security leaders, both in the IT space and outside of the IT space, are struggling to get the support they need. I would say that just based on reading it, it's heavily, heavily um, driven towards IT security, and while it doesn't give the mix of non-IT security professionals, it does say that it, it, it went around the board and spoke to security professionals. Um, and in this report, it talks uh, 2,100 IT decision makers and then a Marriott of other security professionals. And <clears throat> interestingly enough, that above 75% number talks about um, their specifics in IT, but then 63% of of uh, participants talk about overall physical security and not getting the support they need. And I think it's important that this isn't necessarily, um, when you read the report, uh, a one size fits all. Some of it talks about financial backing, some of it talks about resources needed, and, and some of it also talks about buy-in from executives. 84% uh, of uh, this uh, folks in the study reported that 
they're experiencing identity-related breaches and attacks using stolen credentials from the previous year and that the executive teams don't necessarily support it. I think this is something that we often talk about here at the LPRC is defining you know, what buy-in is and support and, and using the data to help do that, the, to gather that. And uh, the reason I bring this report up is because I know that in my past when I was using research reports, there would be this anecdotal feedback of that IT would be a challenge or a bottleneck. And a lot of times, again, personal experience, it was more about having the information and understanding the resource allocation than it actually being an IT bottleneck. So wanted to just uh, give an update on two things that occurred. Actually, one of them occurred um, when uh, Ignite was going on. So Log4j, uh, one of really the largest uh, zero-day vulnerabilities that has ever been exposed. And just to give a kind of a, a brief update, uh, update and overview, Log4j is a, port of, uh, uh, a piece of code that's a part of Apache, and uh, it it spans hundreds of thousands of uh, different software platforms out there. And there have been some recent reports talking about how, and we did we did cover this on the podcast when it first came out, how uh, essentially it's it's here to stay, that the, it is such a large overreaching part of the, the what's going on that, you know, this happened, gosh, I feel like uh, eight months ago was when it happened. Uh, but the you know U.S. government believes that this will go on for a, more than a decade uh, that that'll be there, and the reason being is because this log4j, short for logging for Java, uh, is involved in so many software platforms out there, both large and small, um, that it, it's in nearly impossible to patch all of them. And you may, if you're in the business world or the personal world, you may have seen notifications of software going end of life and requiring updates, not not recommending, but actually hard requirements for updates. A lot of them have to do with Log4j taking that vulnerability out. So if you're running an online store or certain software, you'll see that this is not optional, uh, that they're actually ending support. But there are so many softwares. And uh, the scary part here is software that isn't necessarily being supported anymore. Software that you and I use every day uh, could be uh, on many different things that the, the company has either stopped supporting or there was not uh, a plan to conditionally support. So this is something when we talk about some of these more advanced zero days and zero days just also as a reminder, doesn't mean that there was any nefarious action. It just means that there was a vulnerability that was found that wasn't previously known. So this happens quite often in in this space, uh, in the cybersecurity space, where there's something that's occurred, uh, that uh, there's a vulnerability that's found that was never seen before, and and then generally speaking, you hear a large mad dash to do updates. In this case, because it's so widespread, it continues to be a challenge. Another thing that we talked about here on the podcast was the, the T-Mobile breach. Um, which was all over the news then. It's a massive data breach. Uh, the individual that was responsible for it uh, more uh, actually went online and talked about it, boasted about it, uh, was handing out samples, uh, claimed that when he first did the breach that it was for fun and then realized that he could monetize it and tried to sell it. And if you don't remember, it affected more than 76 million uh, people uh, in this breach with a very out of personal information. T-Mobile has agreed um, to uh, 
basically a class action suit uh, for roughly $350 million. The reports are kind of far and wide. You see most are talking about $350 million. There are some reports at $500 million. Um, I think it's important to note that some reports are in euros and some are in U.S. dollars. So as I was reading uh, the news in the last week or so, I'm noticing that. So you're going to be right around that $500 million U.S. Uh, mark. And we continuously, as we see breaches and as we see exposures, uh, we continue to see litigation and regulation. Um, and this is uh, an interesting one because this was, uh, although obviously very centric around the U.S., you did see some uh, pieces in the EU, although it was a predominantly U.S. customer base that was here. So that was something that we, I think, broke on the podcast in real time, uh, same as Log4j. So we have the luxury of doing these Tuesday mornings. So a lot of times we're right in the kind of mucks of it and we see um, a lot of things happening. So Twitter uh, has been in the news a lot for Elon Musk and fake accounts and stock up and down. Well, Twitter, there's a Twitter worker that's accused of spying for the Saudi Arabian uh, government, uh, and he is in trial. We'll keep an eye on that now that the, the trial has started. Uh, we'll see where that goes to. But I think as we talk about um, social media and some of the ethics and things around it, I think we'll continue to see kind of a change in what we do with social media. I, I think as we're trying to regulate it, I think this is that slippery slope of big tech and what regulation means or could potentially mean for free speech. Just in, in quick updates on ransomware and phishing attacks, LinkedIn had a, a pretty significant phishing attack that targeted employees monitoring, uh, managing Facebook ad accounts. So this is interesting. Talk about ransomware and phishing evolving. We're, we're much more targeted approaches where the phishing attempt is not only tailored towards the person, but after specific data. So I think that's a really interesting one. Also, there's been a rash of Instagram and uh, social media influencer accounts being um, basically stolen for ransom. People are trying to take them and get through, get into them. So Tony Reed, if you don't have your two-factor set up and you're not using app-based two-factor, do it when we get off here because people are definitely coming after it. I saw over the week and multiple attempts on my social media accounts. Uh, and I happen to read about uh, what there's a method to the size of account that people are looking for. And they're going after accounts with followers to try to monetize the return of these accounts. Uh, North Korea hackers attacked the EU um, with you know, a Kanoni rat malware. So we're continuing to see what is believed to be nation state uh, actor backed groups attacking high level organizations in the Czech Republic, Poland and other European countries. Uh, we continue to see this. Um, this is uh, an, an interesting kind of uh, piece of the puzzle because of the, the conflict in the Ukraine. We're starting to see other nations aggressively attacking. This happens all the time, but I think there's a huge, huge difference um, that, you know, I think there's, there's just a big, big difference that we're starting to see. And it's interesting to see what other countries are involved here and the, the, the attention they're getting from traditional media. That could be just a, a circumstance of uh, the unfortunate events in the Ukraine, or there could be the fact that there is an increase. It's very hard with these type of attacks because 
while they're heavily promoted on media, when you look at the back channels, they they seem to be somewhat similar as the amount of chatter about them. I actually just mentioned a little bit about looking at my notes, the hackers stealing Instagram accounts. So there was also 5.4 million um, users related to Twitter that were 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 hacked. And um, basically what the ransom for that is thirty thousand dollars to release all of them. So um, there's there's quite a bit of information about this. This is in line, although I don't know that it's connected with the Instagram attempts. And this is a, a verified leak, meaning that there is information that uh, is verified. This is the this individual who is trying to sell it is giving samples. I always try to get samples to look at what the data sets look like. These are account and credentials. So again, if, if you have a social media account, regardless of what you use it for, it is free to put on two-factor authentication. And my recommendation would not to do SMS-based and for more app-based, which means you just download an app that's free, you link it to it, and that would require you to actually physically look at the code on the app. It, it, while it's not foolproof, it's as close as you're probably going to get with uh, what you have here. And then... I'll end with this, which is kind of some interesting news, uh, although it's been in, in, in the news for a few months now. There was a Google software engineer who um, talked about his AI and how sentient, what, really what sentient, sorry, which is when the artificial intelligence has the ability to feel. Um, this caught a lot of attention, uh, even in mainstream media, when this engineer talked about how he was uh, having a conversation with the AI uh, and that it, it, it had feelings. Google uh, and a, a couple other AI uh, individuals came back and said that um, not only was the information false, that it was wholly un unfounded and inaccurate. Uh, uh, months have gone by since this initial piece and this engineer has been fired and this is uh, Bloomberg and I mean really almost every major news has had some sort of piece about it in the last uh, week or so because it was I think it was two weeks ago that he was fired um, and they what they had um, Google had said is they confirmed that the engineer was uh, you know no longer with them and that it was wholly unfounded and that the information that shared was confidential to third parties but this begs to kind of bring and this is for everybody including us here in, in asset protection and it, it's reminiscent of i think reed and i it might have been 10 years ago having conversation about facial recognition maybe even longer than that and where regulation will go and what it means for all of us as we have the adoption of really prolific technology, technology that just couldn't even be fathomed before with AI and machine learning today, what does the future hold? How do we regulate it? How do we control it? We're already seeing a, a substantial implementation of machine learning and, and AI in the security space and uh, both in computer vision and cybersecurity and physical security. Uh, we're also seeing that nefarious actors are using AI and machine learning to defeat some of the things we're putting in place. And now when we get into this kind of, I, I say, next level of AI and machine learning, uh, what happens when machines really do make decisions on their own today? Um, and this is something that in the innovation working group, we're working on a roadmap for integration. And part of that will be some case studies that we're going to do uh, with the group and one of them will be on AI and, and integration and kind of defining that 
the traditional sense, artificial intelligence means replica human, uh, a computer replicating human behavior. So computer replicating human behavior at its core principle. That's what artificial intelligence is. So ATMs are a form of AI. Most uh, computers that we use today have a form of AI taking that human behavior and just replicating it. When we get into some of the advanced neural networks with machine learning and you have decisioning happening, at this stage, most of what we're seeing is machine learning where there's a predetermined algorithm that was obviously written by a human that learns, um, but it learns in sequential um, or I shouldn't say sequential, it doesn't because it's not linear, but it learns um, based on what it's already been told. When we start to talk about this article, it really talks about the next level AI. So I think in the next three to five years, we're going to continue to see a huge adoption in our space specifically. And with that, I, I believe that we'll have we'll see some regulation or at least attempts in regulation, just as we did with facial recognition and some of the other technologies out there. And with that, I will turn it back over to Reed. All right. Thanks so much, Tom. And uh, thanks, Tony, for all the good information. And and I, too, uh, uh, as you know, have been looking at or our team has been looking at the value exchange component of any type of data collection. What's the value that someone might uh, exchange? And here, in other words, you know, we've talked about privacy really is a, a very complex and very interesting, uh, flexible concept, you know, construct and that everybody's sense of privacy changes and we talked about at the beginning heterogeneity and evolution so we all the same thing well i feel like this could be an intrusion of my privacy if they collect information when i buy something on the internet or go through the use my rfid transponder to go through a toll booth to speed up my travel or make it more convenient and things like that so you know it's a it's an interesting conversation but uh, again we go back to our baseline at lprc that we're here first and foremost to safeguard vulnerable people and places and work outwardly, not trampling on anybody's sense of privacy or um, concerns because they're there, they're real, um, but they are transitory and they are transactional. And so how do we balance that? And is there good research? And I saw online that the British uh, have this ICO, this uh, which is their information group. And um, what they're looking at is they're gonna come out with rules uh, but retailers in the UK are starting just like pubs, public houses to deploy, uh, leverage their existing camera structure, maybe add a few extra uh, and put in individuals that have that have created that have started fights that have stolen uh, that have threatened and so on. So that that individual is approaching their location or entering that they are they have a heads up and they can now make the decision. And so you see already online. Well, wait a minute, what's different than if you have a bouncer standing there or a security guard and the camera's doing it? Uh, and so uh, I think the big difference is that in our opinion right now, that if the technology says, hey, I think this person you're interested in may be approaching or entering, uh, that manager can now make the decision. If it's a security guard or a bouncer, they may make their own decision. It may not be as measured. It may actually include more rather than less bias. And Dr. Lowe, Corey on our team has been conducting a lot of facial recognition research and he's comparing, uh, allowing the technology to detect Asian, African-American, Caucasian, Hispanic, different types of male and female uh, faces and seeing how well the technology performs in matching feature matching compared to 
expert users, in other words, loss prevention or asset protection uh, people, particularly executives that have got a lot of field experience to see, because part of this, I think, equation too, is who's using the technology. Again, if it's a radiologist, a trained physician who's been to all types of residency and fellowship and on-the-job training, um, they they miss things and they miss things all the time or make the wrong call on looking at slides and video and imagery that they're trained to look at as top-notch radiologists. The AI technology now is helping them, the computer vision, spot items and objects or lesions, potential lesions and things like that. They're not, it's not making the decision. It's not rushing anybody into surgery, uh, but it's saying to the doc, hey, hey doc, um, the physician, now here's what you need to look at, or you might want to take another look or take another angle or take another picture of this. Um, and that's saving lives um, and it's speeding up the process. And I think the same thing in, in life safety with what we're dealing with uh, in reducing aggression and violence and theft um, and fraud in these places, these gathering places called stores and malls is, hey, this technology might spot somebody that's victimizing that place has victimized it before or victimized uh, a related place. And so that the manager can now make the call, just like the physician makes the call, that the technology is not arresting anybody or causing anything other than, hey, take a second look or check this out so that that manager might lock the door, maybe save somebody's life. So um, we'll we'll keep moving, but it's, you know, I can see all all sides, but we're just going to air a little bit on the life safety here as part of our research, and we'll let others make the call on sort of ethics and um, and data uh, security. Those are not our area of expertise, and they're both just as critical as what we're trying to do with life safety. So thanks, Tom, for generating that, and and Tony for talking about some of the aggression, and, I, and I, I'll end real quickly. We just got approved by the Institutional Review Board 2 for Behavioral Social Science at UF for a store worker uh, aggression and violence exposure study. Um, and that's where we're going to be looking at the U.S. Um, random samples of individuals that currently or recently worked in a store environment and then get uh, their related experience with any type of aggression or ongoing theft, any type of disruption and dishonesty in that workplace and get an idea how it affected them psychologically and or physically uh, and their perceptions of that place as a good place to work and shop um, and so forth. So stay tuned on that, as well as some of the um, aggressive street behavior exercised by people that might happen to be homeless. Uh, another critical issue that we're trying to understand, how do we work together? How do we do things the right way? Do it gently, but at the same time, safeguard people's lives and property and um, their psychological well-being. So a lot to look at and a lot to work on. We're just trying to remain objective and uh, leverage the scientific method wherever we can. So everybody stay safe, stay connected, uh, check out lpresearch.org um, and let us know what you need or want to hear about uh, or better ways that we can do things. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Crime Science Podcast presented by the Loss Prevention Research Council. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find more crime science episodes and valuable information at lpresearch.org. The content provided in the Crime Science Podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for legal, financial, or other advice. Views expressed by guests of the Crime Science Podcast are those of the authors and do not reflect the opinions or positions of the Loss Prevention Research Council. 